Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Chris McCormick's short story collection, Desert Boys. Chris McCormick was raised in the Antelope Valley. He has his BA at the University of California, Berkeley, and his MFA at the University of Michigan, where he was the recipient of two Hopwood Awards. Desert Boys has been described by Kirkus Reviews as containing tender, heartfelt, fully realized stories about family, friendship, and love. When we leave Antelope Valley, we immediately want to go back, so achingly good are these beautifully conceived stories. Author Karen Russell added, Desert Boys is hilarious, devious, original, and unforgettable. Chris McCormick writes with a joyful, swerving swagger that is all his own. After he's reading tonight, Chris will be in conversation with Britt Bennett, author of the novel Mothers, described by the New York Times Book Review as ferociously moving and by the Los Angeles Times as one of the most exciting debuts of the fall. Please help me welcome Chris McCormick. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight. Really appreciate it on Saturday. Um, Brett Bennett was described as one of the most exciting debuts, and mine wasn't. That's outrageous. No, um, no I'm, I'm just going to read a little bit from the book, and uh, and then afterwards, Britt and I will have a little conversation, and hopefully that will spark some questions from the audience as well, and we will have a good time, and it won't last that long, hopefully. Right? Cool. Um, I'm going to read a short story. Actually, I'm going to read the beginning of one short story and then read a very, very short one after that, so it'll be quick. Um, the beginning of one story that's called... I can find it. The Tallest Trees in the Antelope Valley. Which, if you don't know, is just an hour north of here in the Mojave Desert on the 14th, if you take the 5 to the 14th. Um, and it's a weird place that was pretty small when my parents moved there in the 80s, early 90s and then became a gigantic uh, kind of suburb, kind of overnight, proving, um, or actually creating a lot of problems that don't happen often elsewhere, and also some opportunities that are beautiful. Anyways, here's the beginning of one story, and then I'll start reading uh, the other one. Uh, the tallest trees in the Yellow Valley. The town became a city, and so on, but in the transition, there were elements of both, and I happened to be raised there during that period. In fact, depending on who's telling the story, that transition still defines the place. I'll give you an example of each. On the city end of things, you started seeing department stores, courthouses, various public schools, in short, buildings with elevators and escalators. Our town was literally moving up. Bridges linked stretches of new highway over the anachronistic catterwalls of the railroad, and people were moving in people from Los Angeles and its boroughs, people who'd been drawn to the cheap, carry-only-what-you-need, fresh-start sort of living the desert represented. People who'd been renting a one-bedroom apartment for the entirety of their financial lives woke up one morning and read the signs that the same amount of dollars and cents got to a modest one-story home up north. Sure, the desert wasn't L.A., but for the people who headed into my town, and they came then by the thousands, Maybe not being L.A. was the most appealing thing about it. Still, the place remained and remains a town in certain immutable ways. 
To this day, alfalfa plants are farmed on the eastern fringe for cattle to eat, and their shoots come up in local markets for salad ingredients or also midday snacks for children. You'd make a friend in kindergarten and shake his hand at your high school graduation. You felt confident in the possibility that one day his son and your son together would hunt lizards in the heat. In school, they would be, like their fathers were, guided to the military, the police department, the fire department, or the farm. Most girls, as far as you could tell, longed for marriage and motherhood from the start. They taught children or else studied nursing while they waited for the inevitable shift in priority. Of course, these were suggestions, and suggestions only. If you didn't follow the suggestions, there was still a place for you. It just seemed a lot lonelier in a place. Maybe the biggest indicator of its townness was the attitude of its citizens. The town people looked at the incoming flux of city folk, many of whom happened to be brown, with a slant and baleful eye. They worried about the future of the town, which, as all townspeople understand, depends on the character of its community. They didn't trust people who seemed, in ways both obvious and imaginary, so different. It's true that these townspeople were what some might call bigots, or at least a group of people who didn't like seeing things change, but they were also no monolith. Some might say they were persons, not a people. That's why stories happen. That's why this story happened. And if you haven't read the book, um, it's a linked short story collection narrated by the same character in every story, and it jumps around in time uh, and place as the character moves from the Animal Valley to San Francisco and back again, spoiler alert, and, uh, and elsewhere too. And so it's not spoiling anything to read from the final story in the book, which is what I'm going to do now. And, uh, and I won't read the very, very last few lines because, or maybe I will, depending on how I feel. Um, cool. And this one's called The Missing Antelope of the Antelope Valley. Of course, they were not antelope at all, but pronghorns. Pronghorns that looked to the treasure-seeking settlers of the California high desert like antelope. Upwards of 80,000 pronghorns grazed the Outer Valley's tussock grass before the completion of the Southern Pacific Railroad Line in 1876. The pronghorns, which had coexisted with native human populations for 11,000 years, refused suddenly to cross the railroad tracks. This confinement, along with a growing number of fur hunters and, at the turn of the century, a series of bizarre weather patterns, all but killed off the valley's misnomered namesake. The few that survived immigrated inland and north, and nearly a hundred years passed before anyone in town saw an antelope, a pronghorn, that is, again, that person happened to be my sister. We, mom and dad and I, called her Jean, as in denim, but she went around pronouncing her name as if it were the last syllable in Parmesan. Everyone at her high school who'd seen a map of California was taking Spanish, but Jeanne found herself among the four seniors who'd kept with French, the other three being Colette, who was really Colleen, Bertrand, who was really Bert, and Jeanne's best friend, Amélie, Emily. Not until year two did Jeanne's teacher mention the, that pronouncing her name the French way actually made it male, but by this time, Jean, as in Parmesan, had already stuck. 
Meanwhile, I was enjoying the eighth grade. My parents were so distracted by my sister's college applications and general entanglement with what my mother called womanhood that I was left, by and large, to my own devices. Said devices were few but important and consisted mainly of my best friend, Robert Carringer, and the expanse of uncultivated desert that stretched from the stone wall behind Carringer's trailer park to the back loading zone of Albertsons, some three miles away. Outside my parents' purview, we finished our homework and ran off into the wilderness. We hunted lizards, we studied the carcasses of feral cats, we searched the makeshift dumps for treasure. We slept on warm nights on his roof. We woke and eavesdropped on Carinder's mother and little sister through the EPDM rubber roofing. Ethylene, propylene, diene, monomer, Carringer told me on our first night atop the trailer. He waved his open palm across the surface like a game show model all spread out over a layer of wood decking. We pressed our ears against the bottoms of empty water glasses. All we could hear was the running shower and the occasional violence of the blow dryer. A decade after her husband left, Carringer's mother, an avid lottery player, won a sweepstakes for a new tract home on the west side of town. Soon, Carringer would be living in a big house with stairs and a rec room, and I made him promise I could stay over as much as I wanted. Sure, he said, but we'll have to make a concentrated effort to continue spending time outdoors. True, I said. When you're right, you're right. Jean was preparing to hear back from colleges just as Carringer's mother made plans to move from the trailer park into the new house. While the movers did their business, Carringer spent nights at my place. It's decision week, I warned him as he unfurled his sleeping bag on my bedroom floor. The day Jean was accepted to UCLA, the College of Her Choice, the French club had a study session at the house. Colette hugged her, thinking probably of her own mailbox at home. Bertrand, aware of my father's presence in the room, offered a neutered high five. Amelie, Emily Goodson, who'd been coming over to the house since I was a baby, grabbed Jean by the wrists and jumped up and down with her, squealing for a full minute and a half. She had enormous breasts, and Carringer nudged me to pay attention. I was paying attention to Amélie, but for different reasons. Of all the French club, I knew her to be the only one staying in the Antelope Valley after high school. I studied her for any signs of envy or devastation, and when I found none, I returned to watching Carringer watch her bounce. Then came summer. As far as I knew, Amélie and Jean were spending every day at the mall. That was true of most teenagers in the Antelope Valley. Carringer was proud to say we were the only ones wise enough to understand the value of the desert. You can find a mall anywhere, can't you, he said. So when after a long day of digging trenches and bunkers between Joshua trees for a game of paintball, we spotted a parked car reflecting the orange sun next to our dismantled bicycles, we were, at least I was, afraid. But I vaguely recognized the car, and when the doors opened to reveal Jean and, on the driver's side, Amélie, my fear was replaced by a kind of bitterness. The one unspoken rule between my sister and me, keep your worlds separate, had been violated, and I was ready to call foul. However, Robert Carringer, he reminded me with an elbow to the side, was all charm and accommodation. Ladies, he said, what can we do for you? To hear them say it, Amélie and Jean hadn't seen an antelope but a ghost. Carringer kept asking for details. Where, exactly? 
way, way east, down by the 138. When? Just now. Drove the 20 minutes over here right after spotting him. Him? You're sure it's a male? How do you tell? Well, horns or no horns? Horns. Small ones. How big? I said small. Not the horns. The animal. Big. Real big. I took a different line of questioning. What were you and Emily doing out in the desert in the first place, I asked. It's Amelie, and we were just going for a drive, that's all. How'd you know where to find me in Carrington? Didn't. Just saw your bikes on the side of the road by accident. So what did, what did you stop for? What is it you want from us? I'm beginning to ask myself the same question, jerk. Carringer convinced Amelie and Jean to drive back to the place of the sighting, but couldn't convince me to leave our bikes behind and join them. I rode home, maneuvering Carringer's bike alongside mine. The next day I asked Carringer how the search went, if they saw the antelope again. Negative, he said. Waste of time. Should have rode home with you. And that was the last we ever said of the matter. At the end of summer, Jean moved away to college, and Carringer and I started high school. Four years later, my sister had gone back to Jean, as in Denham, and moved east for law school. Carringer and I celebrated our diplomas before he left for boot camp. Then we had our last conversation, and time passed indifferently. The unspoken rule, keep your worlds apart. But once Jean finished law school and decided to stay in New York, and once I moved to San Francisco after college, the rule became enforced not by us, but by the width of a continent. This, we preferred self-enacted divisions. We didn't like. So as we got older, we grew closer. We called each other more often, and mom got sick and passed away, and I went back to the Antelope Valley temporarily, and dad was doing fine, selling more furniture than ever, he said, though we had a hard time believing him. He was 62 and still nowhere near retirement. He didn't need me at the house, but I ended up moving home anyway to keep him company and made, him, made some money writing for the internet, which almost anyone can do. Jean kept saying how she felt bad for us, bad for dad mostly, which I joke sounded like a gloomy book by Dr. Seuss. Jean didn't laugh. She was the kind of person who cried in the parking lot if the cashier at Target was over the age of 40. So one day she called and told us to pack our bags Family vacation, she said, and when I asked her where she was taking us, she just said to start calling her Jean again. Dad refused to get a passport. He didn't want to be in Paris without his wife. He insisted we go ahead, and Jean asked a million times if he was sure. He was sure. Naturally, Jean did all the talking. Having not taken a French class since high school, she must have spoken at a ninth grade level. Still, I listened to the most basic French words fall out of her mouth, and something about the familiarity of her voice, combined with the strange music of her speech, carved out of me so much respect for her, I almost cried when she ordered, at a sidewalk cafe, two slices of quiche. We scaled the Eiffel Tower and took selfies on the Champs-Élysées, which I stupidly hadn't known was a street. I thought it was a hotel. This was my first time outside of the country, and I clung to Jean everywhere we went. People must have mistaken us for lovers. Jean looked beautiful, heavy lashes and eyebrows framed her big hazel eyes, and she had this naturally layered brown hair and year-round summer skin and a wide mouth with lips so full it gave her the look of a woman always on the verge of correcting something you're about to say. People like a large mouth on a woman, 
even in Paris, I bet. And they probably looked at her and thought, why is this beautiful, large-mouthed woman with him? Why is she with this young American boy with pale skin and an incomplete beard and skinny jeans unfashionably and unseasonably worn with boat shoes? Why is she with this idiot who keeps calling her by a man's name? The flight the next day wasn't scheduled until the afternoon, so Jean took me to a queer club that night and said, I don't know if there's a place on earth more diametrically opposite to the Antelope Valley. We ended up getting a table in the corner beneath large floating paper orbs of green light. I enjoyed watching the men dance, but the sheer mentioning of the name of our hometown seemed to tether our, our conversation to it, and our attention stayed there, and we spoke about home over the swelling wub wub wubs of the music. I told her about the name of the town, how the antelope weren't really antelope at all. She seemed upset. She was drunk, to be fair, and so was I. And I said, sad, right? Even in Paris, we're talking about the fucking Antelope Valley. Jean thumbed the water on the outside of her glass. She said, have I ever told you the story of when Emily and I went out looking for one of those antelope whatevers? We were with a guy. I told her I knew. The guy she was talking about was my best friend, Robert Carringer. I reminded her about our meeting in the desert. Weird, she said. I don't remember that. Here's what she remembered. She and Emily and a guy Emily brought along drove out at twilight to the eastern edge of the desert. The sky was the beautiful sky you hope for during a sunset, blue and orange upstrokes from behind the mountains. And there, on its hind legs, gnawing at the flower of a Joshua tree, stood an antelope, a pronghorn. Its black nub of a tail swatted yellow flies you could make out in the last of the light. When the animal landed on all fours, it turned and looked at the car. Then the pronghorn came walking right up to the road, sauntering, and put its face up against the passenger window, the one by Jean's face, as if saying hello. The animal waited there for a while, its black eyes staring dumbly into the car. Jean and Emily and the boy in the back seat spoke in the reverent tones of witnesses. Jean was the only one afraid. Emily, she said, wanted to open the window and stroke its nose. The boy in the back seat, well, he got out of the car and on the opposite side and, and walked out around the back and, and where the antelope was standing. He came up behind it real slow. The antelope knew he was there and put out one of its back legs. Not a kick, just slowly put out his leg. I swear to God, like a hand. And this boy, he held onto the hoof. First, he just had one hand on it as if they were greeting each other. Then he wrapped his other hand around the ankle. He just held the leg for a long time, started petting it, and Emily went out of the car and stroked the antelope's nose, and the antelope, the pronghorn, let it all happen. And I just watched and watched, afraid that as soon as I opened the window, he'd dart off. Eventually, I did open the window, and I was right. The antelope shook free of the boy and ran off into the desert, and the boy, I can't believe he was your friend. He kept saying on the ride back how the antelope must not have liked something about me. Emily was fine and he was fine, but something about me scared the animal off. And the boy kept saying we shouldn't tell anybody about this, like it was a secret between us. I think both Emily and I had a little crush on him. He was young, I didn't remember he was that young, but he was beautiful, a white-haired, serious boy, and so yeah, we agreed that we wouldn't tell anyone. 
that we would keep the antelope, the pronghorn, a secret. The green light of the bulbous lanterns sharpened her features, lengthening the shadows of her cheekbones and nose. She had the look of something between a Halloween store witch and our thinning mother toward the end of chemotherapy. The wub wub wubs seemed to increase in frequency and in volume, and although Jean continued to speak, I stopped straining to hear her. Soon we would catch our flights, Jean to New York, me to the Antelope Valley, and I didn't know when I would see her next. Suddenly I imagined this was the last moment we'd ever share, and because I knew that she would go on to remember it differently than I would, I ached to do something so spectacular and unordinary that if every other memory of Paris were to be corrupted, at least we'd have this. I stood, accidentally knocking one of the green orbs into a sway and held out my hand. Jean, I said, the French way. And soon, while everyone else in the club beat their bodies against the thick air between them, I held her, my sister, depending on the swinging light, or my mother, or Carringer, and danced slowly to another kind of music. Je t'aime, I said through her hair, into her ear. I love you too, she said into mine. Moi aussi, je t'aime. When you spend a life leaving a place, only to return to it again and again, the returns become increasingly shameful. One way to deal with this shame is to create theories. Theories that either justify your returns or else allow you the possibility of leaving, actually leaving, once and for all. This time my theory is this. The antelope, the pronghorn, somehow knew that Emily and Carringer were different from Jean. Emily, married, pregnant with twins, continues to live in the Antelope Valley, just off Avenue N, where the water tower looms in the foothills. Carringer became a husband and a father after joining the Marines, and I'm convinced he would have lived in town the rest of his life if he hadn't gone off and died in a different desert. My theory, I guess, is that the pronghorns knew Emily and Carringer were meant to stay. And Jean was meant to leave. All places, maybe, bear these two kinds of people. And ours just happens to have a way to tell the difference. It's a hypothesis, anyway. In order to make it a theory, I have to run a test. So in the late afternoon, I tell my dad I love him. I'm heading out. I drive my mother's old car east, away from the light and the railroad tracks, far out into the desert. I leave the road and go as far as the Toyota's tires will take me over before they fail, settling for good in the soft grip of the dirt. The headlights I leave on and the keys I throw 30 feet into an enormous heap of tumbleweeds. I remove my shirt and shoes and sit. Far off, the sun falls slowly at first, and then as quickly as a dropped coin behind the San Gabriel Mountains. This is death country, and I am either going to survive it or not. Under the bleeding sky, I wait for the antelope, the pronghorn, the god of staying and the god of leaving, to show me what kind of man I am. Thank you.
Here's Fred Bennett. Um, I think that that final story is one of the stories that stick with me the most from this book. Um, in part because I think it's about a lot of the themes of the book. It talks about memory, um, the idea of people recollecting something very differently, um, sort of this idea of myth-making, whether that's the personal myths we tell ourselves about ourselves or the myths we create about our communities and place, and sort of the idea about story and the difference between myth and story, um, whatever that difference may be. Um, so I have a few questions I will start with, and I'm going to kick it to you guys. So start thinking about questions you may have for Chris. Um, so the first thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is about place. Um, this book has a very strong and evocative sense of place. Um, and I know from personal experience that writing about your hometown can be pretty weird. Um, so I just wanted to know, first of all, um, how has the reception of this book been in the Antelope Valley? Um, yeah, sit there. Yeah, well thank you. First of all, just thank you for doing this with me. Right. I really appreciate it. We went to grad school together and have gone to many trips uh, together. <laughs> sure. I spent too much time together. Um, so I appreciate you doing it again. Um, and thank you to Skylight for having me. Um, such a beautiful story. It's actually my first time here, so I'm amazed by it and really, really grateful to be here. And June Millam for uh, arranging this kind of introducing <laughs> to uh, the event coordinator here. Um, really appreciate all that. Place and yeah, the reception. People are very defensive about their hometowns, um, especially if they've stayed on living there. And so I've certainly received some uh, pointed emails, a lot of corrections. You know, it's like oh, that that street doesn't intersect with that street. Actually. <laughs> Those kinds of things. You know, a lot of things like that. Um, but I think overall. Uh, it's been funny to see the, the reaction from young people my generation versus older people who have stayed on. Um, the older people are, are, are prone to say, that's not how it really is. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot going on for us. That our town has a lot. You should be so lucky to have our town, yeah. Um, and then the younger people that I grew up with, like, that's exactly right. Like, I, you know, you're constantly thinking about the next place you're going to live. You know, when I was in high school, it was like San Diego was for some reason the big thing. We're all going to live on the beach, you know, the opposite of the desert. Um, and you, so you start mythologizing your future as a young person in my hometown. Um, and then, of course, the irony, the sad, sad irony is you leave and then you can't stop thinking about the Antelope Valley um, or whatever small town you're from. It's, it has, you've internalized something about it that uh, is, uh, it's with you forever. Um, so that's the central question of the book is like, I was so eager to leave. I tried and worked really hard to leave. Once I'd left, why can't I stop thinking about these things? And that's, that central question drove me to write stories to try to figure that out. Um, but to answer your question in the longest way possible, uh, it, people have been very kind for the most part. And yeah, uh, I think they've had to understand that I've mythologized the place, fictionalized it, that my allegiance was to the story more than it was to the facts. And once they figured that out, they were willing to put up with the, the blurs. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, so you spoke this a little bit, but along those lines, how did the um, writing Desert Boys lead you to think differently about your hometown, or did it? It did. It did. Um, you know, when you're in a place, it's impossible. It's, it's, everyone gets this. When you have distance from something, you can understand it better. You can see it more clearly. And so 
uh, I left and I went to Berkeley, which was in my mind the opposite of the Emerald Valley. I had I was eager for a progressive political climate. I was eager for community. I was eager for um, an urban life with active things to do on the weekends, etc. Et and I got to Berkeley and I had all of that, and it wasn't fulfilling in the way that I thought it was going to fix all of my my issues and all my problems. Um, and I had to realize that. I was putting a lot of blame on the Emerald Valley that I had to deal with myself. It wasn't just the place's fault, right? right. Um, and now I go back with my partner or whatever, I bring them back, and it's so beautiful. Like, look at these trees, they're so weird. You, you can't see them anywhere else. And, and yeah, I did actually grow up in this really gorgeous landscape, very independent minded people who are. Uh, you know, to a certain degree, have a healthy level of disrespect for authority, which I really appreciate that I have from that. Sometimes they go beyond that, <laughs> and, um, and they're anarchists or whatever. But uh, but you know, I, yeah, I've, I've learned a lot about the place, and by doing that, I've learned a lot about myself. I think. That's good. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the structure of this book and sort of the evolution of it? Um, how did you decide to use these kind of interlocking or interlinking stories that are that are told by a central narrator? I, it kind of happened by accident. I really wanted to write. I love short stories. I don't know if that's true for many of you. Um, I prefer short stories almost to novels. Sometimes um, you'd think that it's like a quicker read, but it forces you to pay attention to every single choice that the writer is making. So it's a it's a very one sitting, intense kind of experience to read a short story the, the way that an author means for you to do it. So I really loved that. I always wanted to write short stories. And I had this place that I came from that I thought was really interesting and weird and different than what I'd seen in books before. So I always had this notion that I would write a short story collection about the place. I had a really pretentious idea of writing like the Dubliners of the desert, you know? Um, so I wanted to do different aspects of the place. You know, one story at the Poppy Festival, one story at the cafe, one story at the Walmart where everyone hung out, you know? Um, and as I started writing those stories, this recurrent voice came up again and again and again, and, uh, and I just realized it was actually the same person speaking, a kind of alter ego of mine. Um, you know, there's a lot of biographical stuff in the book, but there's a lot, uh, I'm not gay, for instance, and the character is, and so there's a lot of like, oh, what if my life had been like this instead? And uh, I got to see the, the place again through a different character's point of view, and it was nice to have a consistent voice throughout the stories um, that kind of unified the collection more than just a, like a, a, a virtual map or something. Right. Yeah. Um, so this book also, plays with a lot of different written forms. Um, something I was thinking of, I sort of revisited it. So there are like sections that are kind of written as transcripts, that are, there are emails that are included, um, there's a play, there are lists. Um, so how did you decide what other types of written forms to borrow um, and include in this book? Yeah, it, it's, for me, the form comes after I've written a draft. Mm -hmm. I think some, some writers are like, I'm gonna write a story in a, in a play format or something, and they try to do it. For me, I write the draft of the story as traditionally as I possibly can, and then once I figure out what the heart of the story is, I, I try to find the vessel that will best suit that heart, right? deliver that heart. Um, I talk to my students sometimes about every story has a soul and a body, just like we do, and it's the writer's job to find the perfect body to, to vessel forth that soul for that particular story. So for instance, one of the stories is in the second person, it's kind of daily the narrator talking to himself instructing himself to do this, do this, do this, do this, um, which I'd written originally as a third person in a normal short story. 
Uh, but there's a line there where it's like, you know, he has been taking advice from people his whole life, looking for an older brother figure, or a, a male figure in his life who could guide him again and again and again. He tries all these different men to try to do that. And there's a line in the story where he goes, you know, enough of that. Instruct yourself. That's what he says, right? So after I got that, I was like, oh, this story would be best suited in the second person where he's literally instructing himself from the beginning of the story. So that, I, I thought of stories that way, where it's like, what's the best form for this particular What's yeah. the soul of the story? Yeah. yeah, no, I love that. I love that story too. Were there any things that you just were kind of on your wish list of I want to write a story that's like this, or I want to write, write a story that has this feature? I know you said it happened yeah. so organically, but was there anything yeah. that you really wanted to include Facebook? You know, the, the one time where I do transcripts, um, I really wanted to try that because there's an interview in one of the stories where Daly interviews this black kid who grew up in his hometown who is now a successful aspiring politician in the Bay Area. Um, who in high school played the Confederate mascot at the high school. And so Daly has a lot of questions about race and, and how did you, how are you okay with that as a kid? Like what is, um, and I wanted to give that character who played that mascot his own answers. I didn't want him to be filtered through anything. Right. So I thought that that made sense on a thing. But I also had fun like writing in brackets. Espresso machine covers, you know, the conversation so you can't, so it was, it was both, I thought, um, like suited for what the story was about, but also a fun challenge that I was looking forward to. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess sort of along those lines, you've written some nonfiction as well. Um, so you wrote this uh, great piece in the Atlantic about your uncle's art and um, the Armenian community in Glendale, and you also wrote this really great op-ed in the LA Times about your high school having a Confederate mascot. Uh, so how has the experience of writing nonfiction been different than the experience of writing fiction? And do you think that's something you're going to venture into that direction more if you're writing? Yeah, I think so. I'm reluctant as a nonfiction writer. I think what I love about fiction is that it really allows you to present questions and present stories without having to have a point at the end of it, right? It's a question-driven form fiction is. Whereas with nonfiction, uh, I think the expectation for a lot of people is like, okay, what am I supposed to get out of this? What are you, why are you doing this? What, um, I, I would argue that it's actually a question-based form too, right. but um, but I think the expectation changes a little bit. Um, I mean, for me, with the LA Times piece, for instance, about my Confederate, I, you know, a lot of people first of all there was like, there's a, in California there was a Confederate mascot, and um, yeah, so part of it was like an expose, right? Like part of it, I was like, the world should know about the fact that my high school had Slave Day until 1989, where they auctioned off students. Oh. Yes, <laughs> um, auctioned off students for fundraisers. And they should know that the school was founded in 1964 during the height of the Civil Rights Act, and it, during the signing of that act, and they chose the mascot on purpose. It wasn't like an old school that was made. Right? Um, the world should know about these things. Um, that the, especially as the climate, the conversation was happening about the Confederate uh, sol uh, statues and stuff around the country in the South, like, it's not just the South. I wanted to bring that conversation to the to California, too. So part of it is like an impulse, right? Like, a, I feel like this has to be said. Right. Um, and that's true about fiction, too. But the, in fiction, you have a certain kind of, you have to have a certain kind of patience. Right, right. Um, Nonfiction feels like it's now or never. You have this thing that you have to kind of access. Um, and that's maybe the central thing. On a very, very practical level, The Atlantic sent me on a quest to write about the Armenian community in, in Glendale because my mom is from uh, from Armenia, and um, and I know a little bit about that city. Uh, so they kind of 
gave me my question, my driving question. Right. They're like, so where is the heart of the Armenian community in Glendale? Where would you go to find that? And I realized I didn't know the answer to that question exactly. So I, that's what the piece was, was me trying to figure that out. Um, so an editor will give me my question in nonfiction, <laughs> and then I have to struggle through 45 drafts in fiction to figure out what my right. question is. Yeah, that's the difference. Right. Okay, well, I'm about to take it to the audience. One last question before I do. Um, so Desert Boys, this, this lovely hardcover came out oh, almost two years ago, a year and a half ago. Year and a half, yeah. Um, so what has surprised you the most about the reception to the book? I think a lot. I, I, I feared as, I think probably the, the fact that I'm a straight guy writing from the point of view of a gay character. I was not worried, but I was conscientious of a, a kind of pushback from both sides. I thought from the right, I would get like, why are you trying to capitalize on this thing? And then on the left, I thought, why are you appropriating a story that doesn't belong to you? Um, so I was, I was aware of that and anticipating a lot of those questions and anticipating um, that response so that I could write the best version of this, right? Um, I don't think it's healthy to worry about people's reactions when you're writing, but I think it is extremely healthy, healthy and healthy um, to write uh, aware of the potential problems and anticipating them and answering them in the work before they get asked. So I was, I was aware of that. And the great surprise has been that very, very few people have had that reaction on either side. But the, the, the general reaction has been um, thank you for writing this very specific individual character. This is not a representation of what it means to be gay in America or in California in the desert. This is not a representation of anything. This is the story of one individual person in an individual context. And the, the tension between who he is as an individual and all the circumstances of that and his larger context is what the book is about. That tension is what all books are about, the individual versus their group. Um, so that, that's been really um, inspiring and, and it makes me very hopeful for the readership of this country where it's like, oh, they, they know what questions are worthy of asking and, what, and which questions are, you know, unproductive. Right. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, does anyone have a question? Yeah. yeah. I like three. I mean, your life's so amazing. I hope you teach. Oh, thank you. I do. And do you want a microphone and say how amazing I am one more time? Yeah. <laughs> white supremacists in the Animal Valley in the mid-90s, yeah, which still is around, and, yeah, it's, It's, it's essentially the same, it's just you're, 
what you're doing is you're asking questions and and the goal should be a, a deeper question at the end. And it's kind of confusing for students when they first start writing. Um, they feel like they have to arrive at an answer or a point. Uh, even if they get the idea that they're starting with a question instead of a, a, a point, they still want by the end to have some sort of, and that's why you should never, blah, 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 right? Um, and my, my thing is, if you can get, if you can ask a question that leads you, uh, a question that leads you into another deeper question, that leads you into another deeper question, into another deeper question, and you arrive at this place where it's like, this is the deepest level of questioning I can do about this subject. And I've shown you all the work, it's like math. I've shown you all the work to get to this deepest understanding. That is the place where I want to be after I read a piece of nonfiction. Um, I want to come away with like, man, I would, I would have asked one follow-up question maybe, but to ask 10 and to investigate each one as thoroughly as possible, yeah. You know, Britt, you know, this is my event. I don't want you to step on my toes. But Britt is uh, an incredible, incredible essayist as well. And she wrote a piece about the American Girl doll, um, the one, the one a black American Girl doll. And just this question about the, the I mean, I don't want to pitch her essay, but, <laughs> but yeah, but you, if you read that, it's on the Paris, uh, Paris Reviews website. If you read that essay, you'll see exactly what I mean by every paragraph almost begins with a new question that you could only have reached if you had asked the question before it. And it's frustrating for people who are used to being told things. Um, but I think it trains you to think in questions, actually. Um, and that's, I think, our job as writers, is to think in questions. And I feel like I'm repeating myself at a certain point here, but, um, but yeah. yeah. Thank you. Other questions? Can you ask a Speaking of questions, yeah, yeah. On the topic of the theme of place, what do you look for in a place? Oh man, that's a good question. Yeah. I have balls too. Yeah. Yeah. I look for a place. I look for. I look for um, a community. I think I look for a place within the place that does the engine work of a community. Usually, bookstores are those things for me. So I look for a bookstore, a town with a bookstore, it usually has a, a central mission that I vibe with really well. Um, a, a bar, <laughs> um, no. What do I look for in place? I, I look for, um, I, right now I live in Mankato, Minnesota, where I teach at the, the Minnesota State University. And I just started last semester, it was my first semester. And it's currently negative two degrees there. Um, so as much as it's kind of superficial to talk about weather, <laughs> um, it's really important also that it, it is not unrelated to the people that a place spawns. It's actually deeply tied. We are, we are where we come from. Um, so I don't know. I look for all the indicators that would say this is the kind of people we create here. And then I look for the outliers that, that go against that. I'm not a zoologist, um, <laughs> but I'm assuming they're just, yeah, just, you know, man-spreading. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can we, just sort of along that line, if I may jump in briefly, 
Why did you decide to end the book on that story? Um, like I said, I had a lot of problems with reasons I mentioned this sort of myth and, and the idea of this, you know, this place is named after something that's incorrectly named. So what was it that, drew, that sort of drew you to write that story and why did you feel like that story belonged at the end? I wrote that story because I uh, had always been curious about why the town was called, or the set of towns was called the Animal Belly. Um, and when I found out that it was a misnomer, I thought, oh, that's really thematically interesting to me that we named our entire place after um, not knowing the correct animal. Um, that says a lot to me about the place. Um, and I couldn't quite articulate what it is that it says, but it says something about the, the difference between our expectations and our realities. Um, so I thought it was relevant to the book for that reason. Uh, when once I started going, it kind of um, it kind of was the, it was the fastest story I wrote in the book, oh. and it, it wasn't the very last story I did write, but it was the, I think the second to last story that I wrote. So I knew it was going to come towards the end. And then when I got on that image at the end of what kind of man I'm going to be, and here the God of saying and the God of leaving, which is the central tension of the whole book, I think um, I felt like that was I couldn't top that. It's a pronghorn. It's a, it's a different type of species. Yeah, it's, a, it's called a pronghorn technically, but they they thought it was an antelope. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's a hand here too. Yeah. Um, what you said about representation was really interesting, and I'm wondering like where you've been able to have that conversation, and what are the different versions of it, and because I think often it gets explored as like there's one way. Yeah. Uh, that that needs to happen, and so I'm just curious of what your experience. You mean representation, like my, my sexuality and the character's sexuality? Yeah, or, or yeah. like in literature, representation of characters by their attributes. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, on a very basic level, you want to write stories that are surprising. And so falling into a cliche or a stereotype not only is lazy and potentially offensive, it's also really boring for readers. So just on, the, just on that very basic level, you, what you're trying to do is find a way to go create some friction, to create some energy, to some heat, um, and you need opposites to do that. I think um, when it comes to the conversations I've had about how how the character was uh, represented and whether he felt realistic or specific, um, I, I I don't know. I'm trying to think. Um, you know, I I had some interviews with when the first when the book came out in hardcover, where the interviewer assumed I was gay because the character was gay, for instance. And all of the questions were about my gayness. <laughs> Every single one was like, so how was it when you grew up there? Was it really difficult being closeted? And there's a, and at some point I had to come out as straight, right? Um, and I had to tell them. And then as soon as I did, as I was, you know, this is actually just fiction, and I, I invented that, that aspect of him. Um, the conversation immediately turned to issues of craft. Um, oh, so okay, so how, why did you choose to write this? Or, which exposed my own privilege to me on a huge level, right? Where I was like, oh, um, I had been aware of it, but I hadn't experienced it that viscerally, that, that clearly. It was like, oh, as soon as I'm a straight guy, a straight white guy, the questions become about craft and not like, oh, writing an autobiography memoir, there's some kind of dismissiveness about that. So I'm, I'm still learning a lot about the questions of representation as, um, as I have conversations with readers. And um, I've been receiving really, really wonderful fan notes and stuff about you know, how difficult it was for them to grow up in the small town and how they identify with the character a lot. They don't know anything about me as an individual. So, so that kind of thing, yeah. Right? Is that kind of helpful uh, or kind of an answer? Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering with what you just said, connected to something you said earlier, um, you were just talking about um, the idea of falling into cliches when you're writing 
And then earlier, what you were talking about was you said that all stories are about someone um, like in their community and not necessarily. So both of you all wrote books that primarily dealt with young people figuring out their place in their community and whether or not it was going to be to stay or to leave. And I'm wondering whether when you were working through that, when you were writing together, whether um, you felt that it was falling into cliche and how you worked through that. You should answer first. I've been talking a lot. Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I think there are a lot of similarities about our books. Even with you saying how, like, San Diego is, like, your aspirational place, which is where my book was set and where I grew up. Um, my book is also about a small town, but it's a small beach town, which is very different than a small desert community. Um, but I think there are some similarities of both these sort of young, restless characters trying to kind of escape, and, but also still feeling pulled back into their, their communities. Um, so yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think I was aware of it. I think I began to think of my book as a coming-of-age story, and, and aware that there are um, certain tropes that come along with that and certain expectations of it. But I think, again, sort of like what Chris was saying of thinking about how this person can be really specific in particular, um, I think I was aware at a certain point also that I was writing about a place that not a lot of people knew. My book is set in Oceanside. Um, you guys probably have heard of it, because um, it's not that far from Oceanside, but as I've traveled, a lot of people have thought I invented Oceanside, like it's not a real place. Um, so <laughs> it kind of does. Um, so a lot of people didn't think it was real, so you know, I became aware of that and then I had an opportunity to write about something really specific. Um, and to me that was the most important thing, is how can these experiences be, particularly to this character and this place, um, versus seeking out to write some sort of broad coming of age story that could be set anywhere and start anywhere. Yeah, specificity is the answer, right? So um, we all, I think when we first start writing, we want to write about love and trust and friendship and all these universal themes, but the, those are arrival points. I always try to tell my students, we arrive at those universal themes. The reader arrives at those universal themes. The only route to that place is the specific. And so, you know, there are only a few kinds of stories to be told, but by specificity, they can feel fresh in you, and, and that's the way to go. You know, I run a lot of Chekhov in my younger days, that sounded pretentious, it was. Um, and Three Sisters, you know, Moscow, Moscow, Moscow. That, that is my, my book, it's just San Francisco, San Francisco, San Francisco. Um, Joyce, you know, Dubliner, same thing. London, Argentina. Every time you write about a place, if it's Dublin or, or Palmdale, Lancaster, you have to have its opposite in the book. And that's true of anything. Anytime you write about masculinity, you're also commenting, aware or not, about femininity or expectations of those things. You're always implying the opposite when you're writing. And so it's really important to be aware of that, and instead of just accidentally stumbling into things, use it to your advantage and try to get the most out of it as possible. Yeah. Do you feel, for both of you, um, writing about your hometowns and your debut work, that you've gotten it out of your system, <laughs> or will it be somewhere where you'll be returning to again in your subsequent work? I have very dramatically declared that I will never write about Oceanside again. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm probably being melodramatic. Um, but I do think part of it was what you were saying about this desire of people to read your book very autobiographically when it's set where you're from. Um, that was something that began to really grate on me over time. Um, you know, I'd have people calling and asking, like, oh, is this character based on so-and-so? And is this church based on this? And, 
all of that um, started just to be a little bit too much. So I don't know if I'll go back there again. Probably not. The novel that I'm working on now, in the first draft, was started with two kids in the desert leaving and meeting someone in Los Angeles that started the story. In subsequent drafts, I cut that part out. I didn't need it. I needed it, I think, to write. It was literally like me literally moving my mental energy from my place to a new place. Um, so I think for now I'm done. Um, but it's with us forever, and it's, yeah. I'm sure it'll pop up again in, in the future. Yeah. Maybe just one more question? Great. One more question. Uh, maybe someone, yeah. How did you um, go about deciding to order your short stories? Um, ordering the short stories. Uh, well, it's a good question. It's the, the first. The first story is the longest one, and it's um, about the three central figures in the book, the three friends. Um, one of whom leaves one of, for college, one who leaves for the war, and one who stays. That, those were the three kind of central figures that I was working with, um, and I wanted to introduce those three right off the bat. So it was easy to choose that as the first story for that reason. Uh, the last story, I talked about why that made sense for the last story. In between, it was really uh, like alchemy of like, this story was really long, so I want something a little bit shorter. This one was really sad, and I want something funny. This one was just contrasting. It's like making a, a, a mixtape, you know? You want, you want a good variety, and you want a journey to go that doesn't feel like you're on the same note the whole time. Um, I wish it was more interesting than that, but that's pretty much the story, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Mary, and thank you, everybody, so much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.